welcome to Celluloid Citizens, a podcast about film. I'm Brian O'Connell. I'm Sean M. Thompson. And I'm Joan Files. And today we're going to be talking about the infamous Crash, the 1996 erotic drama film written and directed by David Cronenberg, adapted from J.G. Ballard's 1973 novel. It stars James Spader, Deborah Kara Unger, Elias Codius, uh, Holly Hunter, and Rosanna Arquette. It's shot by Peter Shusit, I can't pronounce that, Shusitsky, <laughs> and is scored by Howard Shore. So, um, Sean, Gemma, uh, this is, this is our third episode that we're doing together. Um, and, after cruising in the devils we're at crash and i just feel like we've been on like an escalating you know viewing experience of just perversion like every time yeah we, basically we meet up, yeah you know uh up, up here there's a uh film uh a film criticism book about canadian content called weird sex and snowshoes so i guess we finally <laughs> reached accurate. the snowshoes <laughs> yes we uh yeah every every film we discuss seems to get more and more um unusual in terms of the weird sex and I know this... I was joking with you at one point I think I was like so we've done leather and nuns so what are we we're going to do and then we did inside which was about pregnant women yes so I'm like, yeah, we're but... just working our way through the kinks <laughs> and this is is the strangest kink uh we've yet to cover because oh, I would say so before I forget and I guess at the top of the show um have either of you been in a car accident yeah uh yes in fact I was run over by a car once oh my god oh yikes yeah. that's not good uh when I was a kid I, oh, I, well, I mean that's still not good but no no I mean I was super lucky because I basically darted out into uh the back alley behind our house and a guy wasn't looking at all and the car hit me in the chest knocked me down oh um and somehow neither my legs nor my arms went out they went in instead so basically I had a I had a concussion and I was lying underneath the car looking up into <laughs> oh my god what I, you know what I thought was the mechanics of the car but it's really just the underside of the car and feeling stuff you know um dripping on me <laughs> oh. and uh, my dad and a bunch of other guys from the neighborhood had to come out and um lift the car off me because they were like well no way are you gonna drive the car off my daughter right right <laughs> wow yeah I mean I've not been in anything nearly as intense. I, I was in like, uh, like a minor accident where like an airbag went off and that, you know, gave me some burns or something. And then I was like, you know, our car was T-boned at one point, but it wasn't anything serious. Um, so yeah, I mean, one wow. or two. That's, that's still amazing. I mean, you know, I was being, um, raised in the time before airbags and oh. to some degree before seat belts because um it wasn't it wasn't the law in Ontario that you had to wear a seat belt mm. until I think I was 10 mm. and so that is why when I was around 6 I think um 
I was in the back of a car with uh, in the middle uh, without a seatbelt on <laughs> between two kids. And my mother stopped really quickly and I flew between the front seats and uh, cut my lip on the open ashtray. Oh, my Jeez. God. Wow. <laughs> Sean. Sean. Um, I, I've been in one a couple serious ones. Uh, there was one I was too young to remember my mother was in where apparently a drunk driver ran a red and hit her and uh, the car like flipped into someone's yard. Oh my um, God. My mom says that the car seat I was in went from one side to all the other side. I don't remember that one though, thankfully. Um, and then there was one I was in in college on the highway where I was going about 60 and I was cresting this hill, and it was, like, perfect conditions, like, for a car accident. Like, sun was just setting, so it's sort of that, like, hard visibility with the sun. Cresting a hill, and I look, and there's someone just at a dead stop in the middle of the highway. Uh, wow. So wow. I slammed on the brakes. I managed to get it down to, I think, 45 when I hit. But I was still in a Toyota Corolla, and he was an SUV. So, yeah, T-boned. Uh, this was... Airbags had been out in... Around that time, but my car didn't have one, so <laughs> nothing know. like that. Um, and I remember I must have been in shock because I still smoked at the time. So I got out and there's like oil and gas leaking uh. out of my car and I lit a cigarette because I was on the <laughs> side of the highway and just like, huh. And then yeah. afterwards, I'm like, why the fuck did I do that? That's a terrible <laughs> idea. Um, my mom stopped driving because uh, she almost went over an overpass because uh, she hit oh some God. black ice coming back from the airport, um, which is a very Ballardian thing to happen, really, when you think about it. Mm. That's true. I forgot there's one other one. I was on the same highway, I would add, and I did hit black ice. And it was about noon, so I was very busy. Yeah. And the car, I'm, I shit you not, spun 360 degrees around oh. while I screamed the entire time, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> And I somehow righted it like I was a stunt driver and then just kept going. <laughs> wow. And I mean, I immediately, the first exit, I pulled over and like basically cried. But <laughs> That is some death proof shit. Some death proof uh, act two shit. I was thoroughly like, I'm, I'm going to die. This is not fun. Like, but I somehow, <laughs> there was a cop that saw too and I caught his eye and he sort of looked at me like, what the fuck? And I was like, I don't know, man. You're the luckiest man alive. <laughs> well, the thing that I find so funny about Crash in general, um, and this dates back to when I first uh, ran across the book Crash um, when I was in university <laughs> in a Faber and Faber uh, yellow back copy. So it had like no uh, text inside mm. the, the front cover to tell you what the fuck you were reading. <laughs> and then you open it up and you're like, what? <laughs> this is hilarious. Anyways, um, is that I don't drive and I can't drive. I have never learned oh, how to drive. I'm 50, 53 years old and I never learned I how to drive. I also don't know how to drive as well. So this is a real. Uh... Do you not? So I'm the only driver <laughs> exactly. here. Okay. So Good. you're the only person who actually knows what, what they're talking about. <laughs> I mean, sort of. I don't. Gives you a... I will say this when I got in my major accident, my first thought wasn't, man, I'm so horny right now. Well, this is the thing. I mean, you know, very few people would, would make that connection. And, uh, you know, let, let, let me tell you a 
a funny story that I discovered um, about why Ballard wrote Crash. Okay, so um, Crash basically uh, metastasized from a story in the Atrocity Exhibition, which was also called Crash, except it had an exclamation point. So I guess like a like a musical version of of Crash, like mm-hmm. Crash. <laughs> anyway, um, it was the meditation on celebrity road fatalities and er- and the erotic possibilities of the car crash. And it was the gene from which the novel later sprang. Before embarking on the novel, however, Ballard took advantage of an offer to stage an exhibition at the Art Laboratory in London to test his deviant thesis that there was an unconscious link between sex and the car crash. He filled this gallery with wrecked vehicles. For the opening night, a model was hired to interview guests in the nude. Arriving at the gallery, though, and seeing the cars, she would then only agree to appear topless. A significant response, as Ballard later wrote. The evening, which descended into drunken mayhem, seemed to confirm his thesis only too well, and he set about writing the novel in 1970. Mm, That is I mean, I think... What he does well and what he gets into, I haven't read the book, but I started the audio book. So I got about, I mean, very, not very far, 15 minutes in. So right. the very beginning, but he, he does, there is that link between sex and death and the death drive and the sex drive that I think is sort of more overlapped than people maybe consciously realize or yeah, maybe no, they do realize. Definitely. It. I mean, it, I, I do think that, you know, Cronenberg is a good person to adapt Ballard for a couple of different reasons. The first one is that both of them were obsessed with body horror. Um, Mm. And this is very much a, (laughs) a a literal body horror intersection, you know, Mm. Um, the the idea of the car crash remaking people's bodies so that um, they're, so that they are different, literally so that they, you know, uh, sort of rewiring their bodies so that they can only get uh, a high out of the same sort of in- adrenaline that happened with the car crash. Right. And, um, you know, Ballard himself said that um, he thought that car crashes are often the most important uh, dramatic moment in people's lives, like aside from the moment of their death. And then, you know, for some people, they are that moment. Um, but also because, um, both Ballard and Cronenberg are essentially, I mean, we think of Cronenberg as a horror director, but he really has always thought of himself as a science fiction director and mm. a scientist. You know, he began training, uh, you know, to be a doctor. And, um, when I think about the fact that uh, Ballard had a friend who worked in a scientific lab who he relied upon to go through the <laughs> to go through the waste paper basket. And if he found anything in it that he thought was particularly interesting, he would fax it to Ballard mm-hmm. or post it to Ballard. And then Ballard would spin off of these, you know, these waste paper ideas to um, think of futuristic uh, intersections of science and, um, and the world. Uh, and when I first heard that, I thought, holy fuck, that's such a Cronenberg idea. Right. <laughs> it's like I could right. totally see Cronenberg doing that as well. Um, yeah. you know, so, you know, he, he's always been interested in sex, but not in a 
kind of prurient way, not in an emotional way, right? Right. It's right. it's always about um, insert tab A into you know drive B, um, or tab X into drive Z, and you have to make drive Z out of a wound, right? Or right. a tumor, or you know. Well, the- I mean, it's the sex in this movie. I mean, there's there's sex of some kind in in almost every scene, although it's more restrained than than well, one. Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely a porno centric world. Yes. You know, yeah. um, the same way that uh, the same way that Saad or Batai live in a porno centric world, where yeah. you know, it's yeah. like every fucking thing that goes on involves fucking. I do sort of, yeah, I do sort of love that. Just everyone is just horny all the time in this universe, which is like, all right, cool. It did. I mean, I did, I was revisiting, um, story of the eye by Bataille recently. And it definitely, this film really resonates with that for, for me, because especially the sort of French tradition of pornographic narratives. And it is worth noting that, um, Cronenberg said Ballard's novel was anti-pornographic and that his film is pornographic. I mean, not pornography, perhaps, but in terms of... There is a lot. This is the only film I can remember seeing where we cut from one sex scene and (laughs) we're just into another one. Almost as a scene transition, too. But also in the treatment of the, the, the characters in the film, because... I understand, you know, Gemma as the, you know, person who's read the novel, you could fill us in maybe a bit, but, um, the characters are given a more substantial background in the novel. Whereas in this film, there, there's sort of almost these anonymous and vaguely interchangeable figures that <laughs> there's this great, uh, there's this great piece included with the, um, Criterion release where the the writer i'm forgetting the name i'll i'll check after but she was saying that um you know the characters are like mannequins on which to hang fetishistic detailing basically right down that to the great right down to the costumes especially like the way that they're they're sort of these unsettling <laughs> you know they're they're people but in the same way that like in uh in story of the eye like the narrator and simone and uh lord edmund or what sir edmund i should say that they're characters but they're really more um you know manifestations of this deeper structural pattern in a way that that has to do obviously with the specific preoccupation of the car crash as the scene of you know, sexual excitement, death, all of these interesting things. Um, right. It's really rich in that way, but. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, I, I, I mean, one of the, one of the biggest things that pops out visually, um, and I'll have something to say about how, you know, taking something from words to visuals to my mind is always kind of pinching it, um, you know, making it smaller. You make it palpable, but you freeze it in mm. form. Um, and, you know, the, the same way that uh, Harry Potter now always has the face of Daniel, what's his name? Radcliffe. Yeah. You know, um, so one of the f- first things that pops out at me is 
how Deborah Kara Unger and James Spader, who is actually very young in this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, it's, it's very, very funny. Again, this is like, you know, it's like if you knew, if you only knew James Spader from the black. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <you know? laughs> in his, you know, yeah, I'm fat. Get the fuck over it. You know, <laughs> later, later phase, you know, where he's, where he's shaved his head. And I mean, you know, I think everything. of um, the office, he played Robert California in that the U S office. Um, yeah. And that that's yeah. Later Spader. But it's just he's in a comedic role in that, obviously. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, but this is the Spader who was like the bad guy in Less Than Zero. He's still kind of in that mold. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, right. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll pimp out uh, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, so he can get some meth. You know? <laughs> um, but um, but also he's 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 weirdly bland looking. You don't think James Spader is a bland guy because I've seen him in so many, so many roles since then where, you know, he's not actually a bland guy, but his face looks bland. Yeah. And he and Dara and Deborah Kara Unger to some degree look like clones of each other. They look like, you know, sex switched clones. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you took the same egg you, and you split it in half and you made two people out of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's very interesting in that, um, you know, obviously there's there's actually a couple of very well-known actors in here from, you know, Holly Hunter to Rosanna Arquette yeah. and everything. But the only, to me, the only face, like actual face that leaps out at you and the one that you most distinctly recall after watching the film mm-hmm. is Vaughn played yeah. by Elias. He yeah. he has a certain there's a certain way he's maybe shot or you know the makeup or whatever that you remember his face. But the others, you know, even though I know who's in the film obviously, they do assume a certain indeterminacy facially. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah, and and the idea of Holly Hunter being indeterminate yes, is so I, weird. You it know? is weird. Yeah. Um, because she is such a specific person. And so, you know, it's like, she's, she's like, she's always had this wonderful intelligence, you know, uh, this, this curiosity in her eyes and, you know, in her weird little accent and, you know, it's like everything like that. But, um, this is absolutely perfect to the original book because Vaughn is the character around whom everybody else revolves and they're all very passive and he's very active. Right. He's right. the guy who literally drives quote, quote, the action. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In a way he's almost oh, like yeah. the, he's ringleader. the ringleader. He's uh, you know, and, and in fact, um, in uh in the screenplay they have made him more of a of a cult leader than he is in the book in the book yeah. it's just like you know he's he's got his own uh weird pseudo scientific experimentation that he's pursuing um and if you want to come along with him great you know if you want to fuck him great <laughs> you know <laughs> you want to watch him fuck some fuck your wife great <laughs> you know <laughs> but he's not like, He's not this magnetic. Uh, there is a certain cultish quality to yes. him in yeah. the film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean Elias Coteus is a really interesting actor who's kind of, you know, he was never um, handsome enough to be a leading, leading man. 
he's always been uh he's always been a character actor yeah. um, i kept i kept thinking of de niro when i watched it just because i don't know why he visually yeah. sort of looked like him in some of the shots so but it, yeah, it was and unfortunately at at his worst he seems like a de, Miro, de niro manque yeah yes yeah i mean like a knockoff yeah yeah but in yeah. this he has a very distinctive presence and weight that you know yeah and i'm and i'm glad for it because um i think he he kind of he kind of got the short end of the stick when he went to hollywood um mm. he's he's a canadian uh deborah Kara unger is a canadian uh almost everybody that you see on stage on screen is canadian aside from the three big names of the right. americans the 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 sale point of the movie Right, right, right. And so there's an interesting, speaking of just setting and, and everything, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting to note that, you know, as we, we sort of briefly talked about this before the, before the episode started, but, um, the novel is set in London and Britain. Um, yeah. whereas, you know, it's not specifically, you know, a specific setting in the film, but it definitely, is in a, a North American milieu and it was shot in Toronto with, you know, a mixed cast of American and Canadian actors, um, which I do think might be a purposeful change, like not just, not just in terms of convenience, but um, if, especially if we're considering, you know, the culture of the car that implicitly mm-hmm. informs this movie um, you know, some, in some ways more explicit than others, but, um, it, it certainly is an interesting decision to move it to North America, which has perhaps had a more central preoccupation with the, I mean, it's hard for me to make that claim. Yeah. But, um, no, cer- no, you're, you're not wrong. It's, um, okay. So again, going back to how the book was, was made. Um, Ballard writes about why he did it. And, um, in the 1970s, um, the, the image of a guy in a car, the image of, you know, like, like people, people spending all their lives in a car, right? Um, and the car being so central to people's lives was more an American image. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about how, uh, you know, what is the real significance in our lives of this huge metalized dream? Is the car in more senses than one taking us for a ride? Increasingly, the landscape of the 20th century is being created by and for the car, a development which people all over the world are beginning to rebel against. They look with horror at Los Angeles, nicknamed Autopia, Smogville and Motopia a city ruthlessly ruled by the automobile with its air clouded by exhaust gases and its man-made horizons formed by the raised embankments of giant free of gigantic freeway systems in britain the first motorways are already reaching across our cities many of them are motion sculptures of considerable grace and beauty but they totally overpower the urban areas around and all too often below them it may well be that these vast concrete intersections are the most important monuments of our urban civilization the 20th century's equivalent of the pyramids but what do we want to be remembered 
for in the same way as the slave armies who constructed what, after all, were monuments to the dead. So mm. at the time, um, the time Britain was beginning to adopt the motorways um, that America had already put in place. And what I find interesting about um, Cronenberg deciding to, well, you know, Cronenberg always shoots around Toronto if he mm -hmm. possibly can. Um, but better yet, in 1996, that was around the same time that all the outlying suburbs of Toronto were folded into Toronto, places mm -hmm. like Mississauga. Um, and, uh, you know, previously they had been sort of sub-cities, cities on their own. And in, in and around 1996 um, was when they got folded into the megacity. So mm. Toronto became considerably larger than it had been before, and it was already pretty big, and a whole new series of motorways had to be instituted uh. because of that. So when you look at uh, uh, the motorways that you see in that you see in Crash, in fact, they are as new, as pristine, and as weird to the landscape as, you know, to some degree, the uh, the motorways that were being instit instituted in Britain at the time that the book was written. And I think the, not just the place shift, but um, mm. it's very interesting to contrast this. This is a film based on a book from 1973, but made in 1996. Um, yep. And its proximity to the end of the 20th century is very important, I feel, in terms of, you know, I, I think Ballard said something like this somewhere, I forget the exact quote, but, like, the car crash being a uniquely 20th century way to die, like, you know, <laughs> yeah, in terms that's of... That's true. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely has a... I feel like the political and historical elements are, you know, maybe a little more implied or backdrop than they are the, the focal point. But I feel like, you know, coming to the end of this century and, you know, the, the, it has a sort of terminal atmosphere, the whole movie that it's oh, just sort yeah. of ending. But I think, Everything is coming to an end and it's coming to an end very slowly and very boringly. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. Sinclair says um, the value of Crash, the film is either easy to overlook. It belongs to its own time, not to Ballard's 60s. It belongs right. to a climate of pre-millennial boredom. It's a novella of the last days. It has to run forever. Hours and hours of road footage, centuries of sex without fertility or climax. It's a chamber work from the era of Clintonian telephone adultery where the participants <laughs> fall asleep. Wow. <laughs> the death of excitement, post-surveillance anti-drama, a riposte to Hollywood's mega-budget prostitution of the senses. We wow. have to learn to endure boredom to the point where egoless enlightenment can be achieved. <laughs> <laughs> Great writing. <laughs> um, but let's, okay, so let's move through the film. Um, we don't have to go through every scene because as that wonderful quote uh, indicates, this is actually a pretty meticulously repetitive and monotonous movie in any, in many ways. Well, it's very shamist. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. that's the thing. But that's the nature of, you know, pornography. Yeah, yeah it's, that is absolutely the nature of porn. You know, it's like how many ways can you show the same stuff? Yeah, you know, it's, and so, it's very sadian in that sense. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but um so the the first scene we get already is sort of putting us in laying out the terms for the film I feel and that no cars are involved but it's a plane in this case. Yeah. It opens with this sort of you know sensuous pan over a plane in a hangar and there are many of those in the movie where the camera just sort of and in a sort of almost seductive or you know alluring way well i mean uh james ballard in the in the movie and indeed in the book is supposed to be a director of commercials as i recall so you know it's like hey would you like to buy this yes (laughs) yeah and and we arrive at catherine who is sort of pleasuring herself uh, near this plane and Mm -hmm a stranger comes over and then they start to, you know, have sex. And it's, there's a great deal of attention uh, devoted to these sort of the postures of like the, you know, just the, the poses they strike in terms of bending over or dropping the, yeah. the clothes or whatever. And it was interesting. I was reading Jonathan Rosenbaum's uh, pretty excellent analysis of this movie. And he was talking about how the sex and crash, whether it's in the cars or or just between people, has an extremely autoerotic quality in yeah. terms of even when this guy comes over, you get the sense that he's just another vehicle, like he's he's a tool, but it's not um you know, it's not about this sexuality isn't predicated on uh, connection necessarily with others. It's it's actually very lonely and and solipsistic in many ways. And I found yeah, that like interesting, like masturbating with another person's body. Yeah, basically. And, and they're very distanced from each other. Yeah. I mean, I love the fact that you know later uh, she's you know standing there with her you know with her bum out. Um, I like just like leaning over the uh, the railing of their of their hotel room, and um, you know, and he has to ask her, "Did you come?" (laughs) (laughs) It's like, where were you? You know, it's like you're daydreaming. You know, with your you know your helmet mutant kind of you know uh, no underwear stockings. You know, um, I, I love that skirt that she wears where mm-hmm. she ha- all she has to do is re-angle the slit that her leg goes through. And it's like, <laughs> oh, look, my bum and my vagina. <laughs> the, the clothes assume like a functional purpose in a way, which is really, really interesting, especially considered, you know, with the general um atmosphere of like technological and uh you know the way the cars are used as tools and vehicles obviously the fact that oh, the yeah. clothing is yeah. even, assuming... the, even how huge her uh her heels are her mm-hmm. spike heels you know because they angle her buttocks up for mm. easy access right yeah <laughs> it's very it's strange and that's it's um 
costumes by Denise Cronenberg. Great job. Mm-hmm. I do think they assume a, a very important function in relation to the overall project. But I do love that, you know, after, you know, we see Catherine in the hangar having sex, we then see um, James Ballard having sex, you know, on this film or commercial set. And it's mm-hmm. just, it really, um, it lays out the, the general atmosphere of the film. I mean, I don't, obviously the car crash introduces a new element and there is obviously an increasing tendency toward death. But in many ways, these opening scenes, even though they're quote unquote relatively ordinary sex scenes, mm-hmm. um, are already setting up the, the basic, you know, narrative terms of the film, which are, Similar, although not the the same as those of uh, pornography in many ways. I mean, we learn that these two characters are extremely horny. Yes. And that when they're done having sex with other people, they come back and talk about that and then have sex with each other. Yeah, that 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 in fact is their is their fetish. Their fetish is, uh, you know, tell me who you fucked and I'll tell you who I fucked. And, you know, possibly doing this will help us to get off with each other. (laughs) I I don't know whether it's a fetish so much or whether it's just like, I don't understand why we can't just have sex with each other. Why, why, how things have come to this pass you know, where we yeah. can't just have sex with each other because you're very beautiful and I'm very handsome and we have a good life. <laughs> but for some right. reason, it's just not doing it for us anymore. So we got to do this. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting because, you know, uh, this version of Crash seems like it belongs in an alternate universe to some degree. Yeah. Um, you know, which, which it, which it does. And there's this, there's this, um, you know, cause it's the future past, you know, it's, it's, it's this premillennial idea of what the near future might be. And I got to say that most Cronenberg films take place in the near future of, of whenever he is shooting the film. Um, And, you know, there's this um, there's this line from Crash, the book that comes to my mind, which is um, speeding towards their celebration of wounds. It's mm. almost like you got to find an entryway or and use it, or it will be made and used for you. And right. that is what happens to some degree to, you know, James Ballard when he gets in the car crash. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's the next, it's basically just the next scene Mm -hmm. and he is just driving and it's totally, I mean, he's looking at, I don't know. He's looking at papers. You get the sense. Maybe he's looking at like storyboards for a new commercial or something. Yes. Yes. It's storyboards, which is interesting in its own right. But you know, I mean, why, why do you feel you have to look at the storyboard right now? (laughs) You (laughs) You just get the sense, especially from the beginning of this film that, um, that James and I guess to an extent Catherine as well, they're just so yeah, going back to boredom, like they're trying to find things that will keep them engaged and they're having a hard time, you know, it's just like floating through life. Like I'm so bored, but I have to get ready for my shoot tomorrow. Let me just look through these storyboards while I'm driving. Right. Yeah. right. Cause why not? 
And also it's one of several interesting self-reflexive touches, I feel, in that this is obviously if the protagonist is James mm. Ballard, the author of the novel, <laughs> and um, and he's a film producer who's looking at... I mean, there's a certain... It's drawing attention to itself as as a construction, I feel. And there's we'll get to it when we get to it, but there are several really interesting lines and exchanges, which I don't believe are in the book, that mm. um, feel like basically meta commentary on on Cronenberg's own you know work as a director but but we'll get to that when we get to that um okay so basically he gets in a car crash it's interesting because you know I saw this a week ago so I might be fuzzy on the details but for the most part I feel that you know it's my recollection that despite their obvious centrality to the narrative um we don't actually see the the collisions much in the film at all, like the actual impact of the cars with each other. Am I? Am yeah, I, right I mean, that? you you'd you'd expect it to be like erotically slowed down, and it's not. Yeah, um, yeah it's just real time. It. It's just like a regular car accident. Yeah. I mean, maybe save for the fact that the passenger just flies through the windshield. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, but actually that is, uh, that is the way that it's described in, in the book that, uh, yeah. the husband flies through and so that he's like right next to Ballard. He's like right. literally almost looking in his face. He always I mean, I love this scene so much because it's like, yeah, again, setting up the stakes. It's like, oh my God, my husband just flew through the windshield, this crazy accident. And yeah. James Ballard just looks over and Holly Hunter's character just stares at him. And then starts masturbating. Yeah. It's like, all right, well, that's the movie. Yeah, basically. I it's... mean, she, you know, she's, um, I, I think both of them are dealing with the fact that uh, they've probably cracked their collarbones and mm. definitely gotten one of those big friction bruises that happens when, because both of them have their, their seatbelts on, you know, that happens when they collide with um, a seatbelt. And, you know, like the gravitational kind of bang, you know, yeah. so you've got this huge bruise that goes from like one shoulder to one hip. And, you know, so she's like um, almost tearing at the seatbelt and you think she's just trying to take it off <laughs> because <laughs> she's and instead she like tears open the front of her dress and her bra and lets her boob flop out. Yeah. And it's it's really I feel like it's actually the film devotes like a, a sort of nice quiet moment to it where um it's actually I mean the film in terms of you know palette and lighting and everything much of the time is assuming an intentionally sort of unfriendly and harsh look but interestingly these are some of the most beautiful shots in the film where you see Ballard and in turn um uh the 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 woman in the other car dr helen yeah helen mm-hmm. um yeah. Uh, helen. sort of framed, yeah they're framed by the broken glass in a, like a very precise way and it's like clouds of smoke and per- it's there's a romance to it almost in, in a way that the way that it's shot and i also just feel like 
the sort of triangular formulation that's drawn between Ballard and the woman and then the dead man in the seat is sort of just that relationship that's playing out across the film and that it's like it's two people in separate capsules, you know, isolated from each other and the presence of death. Like that's, that's, that's what, what I mean, you know, she's staring at him. She's staring at him right in the eye. They're staring at each other. And it's almost like what she's trying to communicate to him. Um, She's probably unable to talk. He's probably unable to talk, but it's like what she's trying to communicate to him is, yeah, he's dead. And we're both alive. Right, right, right. So we should fuck. Yeah, more or less. (laughs) I mean, I love, I love the expression that Ballard has because he he does a lot. uh, James Spader does a lot of micro sort of expressions. Oh yeah. And this one is just yeah. He's the king of micro expressions. Like what? (laughs) (laughs) Which is interesting because overall the actors feel. Like it was deliberately instructed that they be very unemotive in a way that is so stu- it's like it's a very stylized and formalistic film, not just in a terms of like, you know, just being understated acting, but in terms of literal like, you know, uh, an almost wooden delivery from time to time. Um, it's dreamy. It's detached. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, very easy to call it wooden. I don't think you can, in fact, call it completely wooden uh, because I do think that there are, as Sean says, a lot of micro expressions going on, a lot of very small things going on. But it's very easy to look at it the way that a lot of critics did at the time and say, you know, what is this wooden bullshit? You know, but I'm, you know, again, this is very, this is very faithful to the book. It's like no one's supposed to be enjoying this. Again, going back to pornography, it is very pornographic. It's like very little emotion in terms of actual exchange until the sex. And then that's where the emotion comes out. It is, it is, I mean, Deborah Kara Unger's performance especially feels like it's deliberately designed to evoke. Like the way she talks about literally everything is this very breath, like you get the sense she'd be like, what do you want to have for dinner? It's just like everything is sexualized. It's it's ASMR. Would you like to put his your penis in his anus. Yes. Can you describe his anus? What do you think it looks <laughs> that like? That scene in particular, I, it makes me laugh. It's so clinical. It's but... yeah, well, the language, know. the language yeah. is like technological terminology, basically. Like, would you like to insert your penis in his anus? Yes. It's, <laughs> it's yes. like, but it's very interesting. I mean, clinical is the perfect way to put it. And clinical is the way that I think of both of them. Uh, yes. as creators, Cronenberg and Ballard, you know, super clinical, you know, super interested in jargon, super interested in technology. Although with with Cronenberg, we think of him as being more interested in the technology of the body, the body as a machine that can go horribly wrong. Yeah. You know, well, um, but, you know, one thing I was going to say is that I know for a fact that Cronenberg cut sex scenes between Ballard and Catherine's secretary because Spader mm. and that actress had too much chemistry. Huh. Ah, that's great. Right. That's great. That's uh that's very telling in many ways. Yeah, that <laughs> was yeah, not- everybody is 
whatever. <laughs> Everybody is very cool and collected, even when they're fucking. It's sort of, I mean, yeah, I think it's very like, it all, I don't know. It almost reminds me of like greasers in the fifties. They're just very like, uh, what's the, I mean, like just very disaffected, you know, yeah. just yeah. very like, yeah. oh yeah, we just fucked and it was great. Like, <laughs> On to the next. Tomorrow's drag, man. The future's a flake. Yeah, it is very much very late nineties in that regard as well. Yes, (laughs) but it's it's interesting to me because like we think of like a a clinical vocabulary um, having as having attention with pornographic qualities, but in in some ways, I don't like. I don't know if it's that detachment is being applied to pornography or that an eroticism is being invested in clinical quality. Like you you see what I mean in terms of that? It's, it's a very interesting tension in that, uh, there's sort of a, a complex, like, I don't know. Well, There's a fetishization of, um, Mm. I mean, moving ahead, we see James in the hospital and he's got this. Mm -hmm. And again, we, we've kind of, float lovingly over his mangled leg and the yeah. pins that are in it and the, <laughs> the metal attaching to the flesh in a very Cronenbergian way. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it, like all of this medical equipment is incredibly fetishized. It might as well be a ball gag. Yeah. No. And there's other, like, you know, when he's in the car later, we, we will go back to the normal, t- but the details of like adjusting your seatbelt and handling the wheel and, all of these things are shot with a deeply fetishistic attention to detail. And I mean, I only I only did the audiobook at the very beginning of Crash, but from what I remember, it goes into very explicit detail in terms of bodily fluids on seatbelts and <laughs> the yeah. way that the genitals are pierced by various types pieces of the car and like glass <laughs> <Yeah>. and <laughs> in foreheads, and so it is very fetishized. I almost. I mean, I, I guess uh, with words, I guess there's a way you could fetishize it almost more than you could visually. Yeah, yeah. well, it's it's I mean, we could get into the differences between, you know, pornographic. But I mean, needless and, to say, yeah, it's from the book. And the mm-hmm. thing is, the thing is, it's not like, you know, forgive me the uh, the name drops, but it's not like um, it's not a, a film like Solo or a Hanukkah film where deliberate efforts are gone through to de-eroticize any sex acts that are happening. This is a film that is shot in a way that is somewhat pornographic or erotic, at least. You know, I mentioned those sort of, you know, loving pans across the details of the car or the, you know, those close-ups or, you know, Sean mentioned the mangled flesh and everything. All of these are not shot in a way that is necessarily, uh, you know, d- detaching these images from an erotic mm-hmm. energy. But the tone is so cold that it's it's a very complicated um, sort of. Well, I mean, it's machine like. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, machine mechanized. Um, yeah. And also, Zadie Smith says that the tone is calm and curious. Yeah. And, in the book, and I agree. Um, there's a okay. How about this? Vaughn elaborated endless variations on these collisions, thinking first of a repetition of head-on collisions, a child molester, and an overworked doctor, 
reenacting their deaths, first in head-on collision and then in rollover, the retired prostitute crashing into a concrete motorway parapet, her overweight body propelled through the fractured windshield, menopausal loins torn on the chromium bonnet mascot. Her blood would cross the overwhite concrete of the evening embankment, haunting forever the mind of a police mechanic who carried the pieces of her body in a yellow plastic shroud. Alternatively, Vaughn saw her hit by a reversing truck in a motorway fueling area, crushed against the near side door of her car as she bent down to loosen her right shoe, the contours of her body buried within the bloody mold of the door panel. He saw her hurtling through the rails of the flyover and dying as Vaughn himself would later die, plunging through the roof of an airline coach, its cargo of complacent destinations multiplied by the death of this myopic middle-aged woman. He saw her hit by a speeding taxi as she stepped out of her car to relieve herself in a wayside latrine. Her body whirled a hundred feet away in a spray of urine and blood. Wow. 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 Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it's hard, it's hard to, um, think about being aroused by that. Right. right. <laughs> I must admit that my first, um, my first reaction to the film itself was that, you know, apparently Ballard says that it's better than the book. Uh, yeah. That it goes further. And I disagree. It's certainly more visual, but almost all world, words to visuals adaptations, like I said, disappoint on some level. At the very least, they constrict right. to take people apart on screen the way that they're taken apart in the book. Would you would never be, get the film made. Yeah, it would be pornographic in a completely uncinematic way. Uh, right. You know, unglamorous, uh, anti-beautiful, ugly in that U-G-L-Y with no alibi kind of way. Yeah. And if it was still somehow erotic, people would be disgusted with themselves for being right. aroused by it. Well, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's very – I also just think even in pornographic terms, I mean, it wouldn't work because um, pornographic literature obviously – I don't think this is a, a terribly controversial statement, but the relationship between literature and the reader is a far more intimate one than the relationship between a viewer and a film. Um, yep. And and descriptions like that have a greater chance of affecting the reader in whatever way um, than a film would be able to, but well, you're able yeah. to hop forward and backward in time in a way that I just don't know that you could ever successfully do in a film without it being too jarring. And also yeah. just, you know, the imagination produces more plausible effects. Whereas when you're well, watching, right, cause you have to imagine all of this, but when you're filming it, you have to think of the practicalities of like, well, how do we actually show this? And then the, and then the audience yeah. is thinking of those practical, like it becomes, it becomes fake in a way that it isn't weirdly when you're reading it becomes fake on screen uh, but the interest yeah. the, the other interesting thing to me um listening to that passage is um it's much more lurid obviously than cronenberg's film but mm -hmm. um the what strikes me from the prose excerpts i've read of ballard's novel and uh you know cronenberg's film is that um so much of this film seems to be about tearing the novel down, like really reducing it to the most essential elements. I mentioned earlier, you know, the backstories get pruned. Yeah. Um, even in that description, 
you're hearing a lot of information about various characters that don't even appear in the novel, evidently. <laughs> yeah. Just, um, whereas here, it's uh, it's extremely austere and minimal um, in a way that is is very. Int- I mean, it's it. I wonder which approach is. I guess I guess it depends on the effect that um, you're going. Well, for. I guess the thing oh, is, if you're oh. going for erotic, there is a certain. Again, like when I say pornographic, I mean like quite literally. Like if you're watching a porn, mm-hmm. they yeah. often don't go out of their way to establish who a character is. It's just it's the mechanic, right. or it's the nurse, right. and so that's sort of applied to this it's film, where it's like, man. yeah, it's, but instead it's like it's the it's the commercial director, it's the um, <laughs> it's I don't know, the, wife, the sexy wife with the weird slit in her skirt, right? It's the disaffected wife. It's the mechanic i don't know into wounds yeah <laughs> it, it's it's interesting i mean because i was in the rosenbaum article it talks about how ballard says of his novel that he hopes it is the first technological pornographic novel um right. but that it's also a cautionary tale which might strike us as a contradiction in terms depending on how you view pornography but um that's that was his argument but um cronenberg described ballard's novel as anti-pornographic and that his film is more pornographic and that neither the book nor the film are cautionary tales (laughs) um which is interesting in that but i think it it makes sense in terms of what sean was saying that the excess of detail you find in Ballard's book, while it is, it might, it's, it's fundamentally novelistic, not pornographic. I mean, I know that I read from the Criterion Collection essay that, you know, they, at one point in this film, they pick up a prostitute and, you know, have sex with her in the car. But in the Ballard novel, you get like a couple of sentences or a one long sentence explaining some backdrop about her life whereas in this you know it's just a rotating plate of anonymous figures that enter That's right they come in for the sex they leave they come back if they're needed you know all yeah. of these sorts of um you know it, it's both much more unsettling in, in some ways but also you know more in line with the narrative strategies of pornography well, i mean they're almost like cars you know yeah. it's like yeah. this is the prostitute model you know the prostitute three five or and it's just <laughs> you know it's the it's like this is the ballard model and, yeah you know he's a, he's well, a classic well yeah yeah he yeah i mean no i i agree with you um you know one of the things about one of the things about the film that I'm sure everyone has noticed is that by making something palpable, you reduce it. And therefore the stuff that you can't show on the screen, you have to uh, get in through implication. You have to convey it through implication. And, you know, how do you convey it through implication? It's almost like, um, you know, this, the same way that the, the film only moves because we because there's a part that we don't see between each still frame of the yeah. of the film and that blurring, 
you know, creates the illusion of movement, um, the thing that endows a film with emotional impact is what occurs between the stuff that we're allowed to see to some degree. Right, right, right. (laughs) You know, this and in this, they're paring away all all emotional impact. You know, it's like Ballard is sort of like, you know, let me let me describe how uh, this actually wouldn't be very sexy. (laughs) <laughs> right and Cronenberg's like no nah, I'm not going to do that yeah. <laughs> it's like, if, if it's... you find it sexy that's your fucking problem <laughs> yeah I mean I think Cronenberg you know we'll talk let's talk about that cautionary tale comment because well, I do think the novel I mean I can see that much more even in the small amount I've read from the novel whereas in a weird way when I watch this film I, I kind of am like does Cronenberg, I mean, I, I'm not doing the thing where artists, I'm being facetious, but yeah. does Cronenberg want to fuck a car? Because it's sort of like, <laughs> that's the vibe. Well, that's, okay, so this is an interesting thing in that there is, you know, okay, we're we're all on Twitter. Um, <laughs> we've seen the ongoing debates about morality, air quotes, and art. <laughs> yeah. and it, like, Oh, you know, it's okay if immoral stuff happens in art as long as it's clearly framed as being wrong or whatever. (laughs) Crash. Crash is very interesting in that it truly felt like this was not a film that was adopting a moral viewpoint on the character's actions at all. And I mean... There it's not, is a, it's no, not a positive, it's not a negative, it's just, hey, they're fucking cars. Yeah, it's like, not, it's an exploration of this state of, I don't know, state of being or this fetish or whatever, but yeah. it isn't a film that is offering you any framework through which to view its characters as um, positive or negative or whatever. It's not... Cronenberg never, you know, indicates that, you know, getting off on car crashes is wrong. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. There is, there is no, there is no character who suddenly pops up to go, what the fuck is wrong with you people? No, you know, no. it's like, you know, because I, I guess what we're, what we're not debating per se, but you know, it, it is sort of like, what is the implication here? Um, it's not so much, does Cronenberg want to fuck a car? It's, does Cronenberg want me to fuck a car? Yeah. Is Cronenberg <laughs> saying fucking cars is a good thing? You know, like dying in a car crash because <laughs> you want to fuck a car? Is, is that a good thing? Is that is that the kind of high that I should be chasing because these people seem to think it's okay. (laughs) Well, let's talk a little bit about the characters. This sounds so reductive, but it is more complex than just sexual arousal. Evidently Um, the character's attitude toward car crashes as a, as a thing, because it is, they do adopt a, a specifically, sort of philosophical attitude toward this that um it's more it's it's deeper than just arousal whether it's in terms of the cultural connotations as we i mean i think it it could as someone who's had a couple near-death experiences it could be something as simple as like you don't there's no way to really replicate the rush you get being like holy shit i'm still alive there just isn't and i think the car crash is probably 
in a weird way, one of the safer ways to sort of get into that death drive thing because well, you do have seat belts and you can sort of it's one of them as, as, control it. Yeah, yeah. As, as Gemma quoted Ballard, you know, he said the car crash was the most important event in in people's lives outside of their deaths, and I think that simply might be because the car crash for most people is the nearest they get to death in in life. Um, you know, uh, but it's it's. It's interesting because, you know, you said that the rush of I'm still alive, but as we learn at the end of this film, um, I don't think that, you know, I'll just say it because we don't need to go in chronological order. No, this. No. <laughs> at no. the end, Catherine gets in a car crash. Yeah. She's superficially injured. James asks her, you know, are you OK? She's fine. And he says, maybe the next one, right? So maybe the next one, darling. It's not about the rush of being alive. It's about the rush of death. It's about like, I mean. Well, yes, for them. I mean, I get. I mean, I guess that's me also inferring some things. But it's it it's sort of that like very thin line between like the thrill of still being alive and the thrill of well, what if I died though? Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 very. Um, Wouldn't this be the most spectacular way to die? Well, you know, we, it's like we see that with the hilariously grim and morbid uh, reenactments of you know dead celebrities' car crashes, which are pretty pretty heavy for me. But, yeah. Um, yeah. We first meet Vaughn reenacting. James Dean's car crash. Uh, and I just have to say before we go into it, I know it's a film, but like, were there flyers? How how did they find this? <laughs> Was it just like you go to the coffee shop and it's like, hey, I'm gonna have a fake James Dean car crash. Anyway, yeah. it's Friday. I'm sure. I'm sure there are people who would go to those sorts of events. Honestly, I mean, I would go. I'm just saying, like, how did they? You know, it's, it's, it works for a film universe to not explain how yeah. everyone showed up. But it, it, you are well, sort you of know, left like, like what was the in between scene? Are part of the cult. All of those people are part of you yeah, know. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah. it is very cult like. Yeah. yeah, it's it's yeah, but it's um they reenact James Dean's car crash and later. There's a character who has a fixation on Jane Mansfield's death. Um, it's very weird. Like he's like they're preparing for the next one, and he's like the the guy, uh, whatever his name is, Colin, I think, is yeah. like, um, yeah, uh, give me really big tits so the audience can see them cut up on the windshield, and it's like, ugh, it's heavy. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, but um. It, and the dog too. And the oh dog. God. I have this great idea for what to do with the dog. You're like Jesus. <laughs> it's heavy. I mean, so but it is. So I do feel that at the root of this is the drive toward death, which is yeah. yeah I, I mean, I was so I was reading um, Sontag's essay on the pornographic imagination, which is with Bataille. And she says, here's a quote that she says, every pornographic work speaks either overtly or covert. Oh, no, wait. I am not suggesting that every pornographic work speaks either overtly or covertly of death. Only works dealing with that specific and sharpest inflection of the themes of lust, the obscene, do. 
It's toward the gratifications of death, succeeding and surpassing those of Eros, that every truly obscene quest tends. So that is, I mean, it does seem to be suggesting that, you know, this is obviously exploring the the outer extremes of sexuality, <laughs> which... Sure. Um, I mean, it's literally the people that are in an open relationship and it's no longer working for them. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and it's something much more profound than, you know, whether it's the sort of sadomasochism uh, that we saw mm-hmm. in cruising or the, you know, just the, the repression, sexual and emotional and the devils that we've already discussed. This does feel like a work um that is addressing this almost like uh i mean the easiest comparison would be to like a sort of theology and mm-hmm. and that it yeah, becomes the, this, the car yeah it, it becomes a total sex is a total experience for these people in the same way that religion is a total experience for others um and they're going to the farthest climbs you know, where it's the most divorced from what we would normally regard as healthy sex or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously the, the furthest climb is, is death. Um, so it is well, yeah, also, you know, I, I think certainly with Saad, when I read Saad, mm-hmm. I, I really felt that after a while you just get bored of vanilla. Yeah. You get bored of Yeah, and and you know, you're you're beginning with a guy who has a fetish named after him. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like he's exactly starting in a vanilla place, but yeah. but his stuff gets so contortionate by the end. It's yeah. sort of like, well, the only thing that I can think of to do with this body that I'm intersecting with is to rip it apart yeah, and find you ways to fuck it. And yeah. find new ways to penetrate it and be penetrated by it and, you know, to mess with it. Yeah, it's, I read, you know, I read Juliet, which is his yeah. thousand page. It's where you really start to see how obsessive this whole thing can be. Because by like page 805, we're getting, <laughs> yeah. we're so far into sexual, you know, permutations that the only thing Juliet can do is literally like massacre babies (laughs) (laughs) without even like, but it's, it's also interesting in the sense that um, from that same Sontag essay um, I was, I was quoting from, um, she draws a big contrast between Saad and Bataille in that, um, Obviously, Saad's works are bigger in scope than Bataille's, but uh, the fact that, you know, she says uh, something like uh, five seconds, but it's it's specifically relating to this idea of um, the fact that, you know, in Saad's novels, there's mountains of corpses, but the deaths never really feel seem, never really feel real in the way that you know, because it just becomes another expression of his of his urge toward perversity. Yeah. Um, but there's no sense of mortality in Saad's books in the way that you get with Bataille. Um, whereas 
you know, story of the eye is not among the sort of operatic choruses that you get in Saad, but it's among a small cast and it's a delicate progression and the progression ends in violence, but in a violence that has much more weight than the violence in Saad's book has simply because of the, the ceremony with which it's approached. And that's why yeah. I feel like Crash is, you know, it's more Bataillean than Sadian <laughs> in the sense that it's not, um, you know, it's not like an orgiastic, you know, just deaths are like uh, by the numbers and just happening all the time. And it's very much a, a film with a, a very keen sense of mortality and a real weight to the way that death is approached as a as a foundational experience for all of these characters. So, well, well yeah, I, I agree that when people are removed in Crash, they don't come back. You yeah. know, and we sort of get to know them. We yeah. sort of get to know their, <laughs> you know, whatever yeah. value it was that they had. Um, but at the same time, they are very much also parts in a machine, literally parts yes. in a machine. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, sort of almost like variables in a, an equation where they're just tossed into these <laughs> different combinations, but that's they aren't. Equation. It's very interesting because you see that the characters engage in these rotating triangular affairs where, you know, the Catherine becomes obsessed with Vaughn. Everybody seems to become obsessed with Vaughn at some point. Um, James has sex with Gabriel in one of, you know, a pretty icky Cronenberg moment. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you mean the leg wound as vagina moment? Yes. Yes. I mean, Cronenberg has his, you know, has had his gross moments, obviously, but this is pretty, like, woof, like, you know, a wound. He, yeah. James penetrates this disabled woman's, you know, sort of vulva-like wound, which talk about, you know, the transformation of the body in terms that of... That is really true. It yeah. is body horror. Yeah, Um but it is inter- there's one detail I want to mention specifically because it 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 interests me as as a sort of um meta commentary I guess Vaughn initially tells James that his his quote unquote project or his study or whatever is about the reshaping of the human body by modern technology right yes. and then later on very interesting he says oh that's just a a silly sci-fi concept that you know people don't look too deeply into it and it it just gives me an excuse to what i'm really getting at which is you know the car crash as a, a, a force of sexual you know liberation of the sexual energies and benevolent psychopathology and all of these um that felt self self Well, no, it yes. felt like Cronenberg, like because the reshaping of the human body by modern technology is yeah. generally the lens through which at least the first half of Cronenberg's career is is interpreted. Whether it's you know video drama oh, yeah. or um, all of the <laughs> any number of his films, but in this this film deliberately 
sort of teases you with that possibility, but then it tosses it out. Like it says, no. And the explanation he offers, like, this is what I'm really into. Doesn't clarify in the same way that, you know, the initial description, the reshaping of the human body might give us some sense of what this is up to. But when it's pulled back, all he says is that he is he's literally obsessed with car crashes. It's, it's about yeah. car crashes. It's not about the car crashes, just like, you know, just like the eye or the egg and story of the eye, the car crashes right. and crash don't stand in for something else. It seems, <laughs> you know, they, it is they about stand for themselves. Yeah. They stand for um, themselves. I, I was, it caused me to think about, um, have you seen video drum yet? I have. I love video drum. Okay, great. Sorry about that. I I, I didn't mean to insult you by assuming no, you hadn't. Um, not at all. The uh, the vagina like wound that um, that James Woods develops in his stomach and mm-hmm. takes the flesh gun out of mm-hmm. in video drum. Um, you know, when you first look at uh, at the wound, the the effable wound, you're sort of like. Oh, that's what that reminds me of. And then you have to reframe it in your brain and go, but what if it's just a wound? Yeah, yeah. You know, that makes it far less cool and indeed gross. And also just it sounds painful and yeah. it sounds like you might give yourself some kind of disease. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the, you know, sort of like the sad bataille split that mm-hmm. I was talking about. There is a very interesting difference in the treatment of body horror between this and Cronenberg's earlier films where, you know, like in Videodrome, which I love, um, yeah. the body horror is extremely excessive and lurid and very symbolic. And, you know, all of it's very rarely sexy. It's not sexy, but it's also like, it's, it's like very, um, Rich, like you can interpret a lot into the symbols that are presented to you in video. Oh, it's, it it is operatic. It's operatic. Yeah, operatic. Whereas you know, you know, so Sontag says Sad is the Wagnerian opera of pornography, and Bataille is the chamber music. I feel like that's sort of sam- similar to the the split uh-huh. between. Um, <laughs> Because in hmm. in Crash, it's it's interesting as a sort of transitional moment in Cronenberg's career for you know That's for my That's true. That's um, true. You know, Sean, you and I talked about one of his more recent films, which is Cosmopolis. Oh, Cosmopolis, yes. Which admittedly, I don't know. It's such a weird movie. I I, I didn't love it really, but um, it certainly has affinities with Crash in terms of this. Um, extremely artificial, detached, uh, poetic style. Um, I mean, I guess it's similar in that it's another character preoccupied with his own death. Right, right, right. But also a character that exists within an extremely mediated and fake, like in Cosmopolis, the, the level of artificiality is taken to a degree of like, you know, everything looks green screened and ugly <laughs> and everything. Yeah. Um, True. But this felt like a sort of bridge between those two phases of his career. Like, 
Well, it's, what's interesting to me is a lot of his, I mean, um, the stuff he's done lately, like A History of Violence, and he did yeah, one yeah. about Jung and Freud, and then he did um, Eastern Promises. They're much more, I hesitate to say... Realistic? Normal movies, because <laughs> they're still Cronenberg. But they're, they're, they don't seem to be as preoccupied with his sci-fi right, body right, horror. Right. And they seem to be more preoccupied with the human spirit and sexuality and the violence drive in more of an, um, I don't know. I was going to say an abstract sense, but maybe not. It's not like a, so the thing I would say specific sense than an abstract sense. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's, I mean, those preoccupations are there in the body horror films as well. It's just that he's dealing with, it's just dealing with different, imagery than yeah like, the aesthetic has changed and yeah. i think it's i think you're right with um with crash you do sort of see this sort of um his transition away from heavy prosthetic body horror necessarily <laughs> to more of a realist mode but still sort of approaching the same preoccupations 